I remember the first time um, I made a, a game-winning shot in a game of basketball. I was in middle school, and uh, our church, after our Friday night youth meetings, would get together um, at the school, at the uh, middle school next door, and we would rent the gym, and for about an hour and a half, two hours, we would play basketball, we'd play volleyball, we'd hang out. And I remember I was in, in, in middle school at the time, and I was playing with a bunch of high schoolers, and I was a little bit intimidated by them. It was kind of scary. It was frightening. It was game point um, for us. The other team, I forgot, we might have been up by two or three points. And I remember getting the ball a little bit behind the free throw line, and I just shot up this shot, and it went through the net. And I remember one of my teammates, a guy named Jonathan, he was uh, three years older. Then he came running up to me. He said, good shot, good shot. And he, he lifted up his hand, and I was like so excited that I made the game-winning shot. I ran, and I ran to my older brother. He wasn't watching. But I said, I made the game-winning shot. Isn't that great? And he said, yeah, that's excellent. And hey, we're celebrating. And that was the first time I ever did it, and I was so happy. Uh, those moments have been a little bit too few and too far between in the meantime. But it's one thing to make a game-winning shot when you're playing with a bunch of church people in a small little gym somewhere. It's a completely other thing when you're playing for the NBA Finals. And you're, you're the heavy underdog, and you're playing against a team of five all-stars, and you're the, you're the scrubs, that somehow you're the mighty ducks who made it into the Finals. And nobody expects you to win. I, none of the ESPN, NBA.com, nobody expects you to win. They, they're surprised that you even got their preseason. You're supposed to finish last in your conference, but you made it to the finals. And it's game seven. Somehow you made it there. And you're playing against this big, bad team that's supposed to wax you and, and kick you out of the court. And you're playing. And somehow you've got to within three points. And you're standing at the foul line with three shots. A chance to tie the game against this team that you don't stand a chance against in their stadium where tens of thousands of people are cheering against you, watching your every move, where the lights are on, cameras are rolling, and all this pressure is on you. At that point, at that point, what is it that's going to determine whether you make those shots or not? It's one thing for us to sit here and say, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. It's one thing to say that in here. It's a completely different thing to say that. You, know, you, you remember how this song was written. Some Indian missionaries uh, went into, I'm sorry, some Indian people went into their village, a tribal village, and was preaching the gospel. And his wife, his children, and finally his life was taken from him. And with each person who is being killed, one of the verses of this song was his words. Even though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And based on his words, the song was written. It's one thing to say that when we're here. It's another thing to say that when we're out there and the pressure's on and we're living in the midst of a hostile world. So what do we do? I, I, I tell you that Every single one of these people, these basketball players who's made those three free throws with one second left, no time on the clock, pressure, getting higher, differences, you stay drier. What's the difference? How do you make that shot? Every great person who said they've made that shot when it counts has said, I've made that shot a million times when nobody was watching. And I've made that shot a million times in my head. I've made that shot a million times in practice. Why? Because practice doesn't make perfect. You have to practice the right things. 
so that when the time of testing comes, that you'll be able to pull through and you'll be able to win the game when the pressure is on. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, Peter talks about how we can win when the game is on the line, when pressure's rising, when persecution comes, when you're sitting again, standing in front of people who hate you and want you to fail, and you've got 20,000 people who are cheering for your downfall and your demise, cheering for you to mess up. How do you overcome in those situations? How do you win the game in that situation? How do you stand up under the pressure and come out as a winner on the other side? First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, talk about the practices that we need to have that we need to embrace, that we need to incorporate into our lives now so that we can be prepared later. This is the word of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be Glory, the glory, and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. So Peter begins by saying the end is near. The end of all things is near. Okay, the shot clock is ticking down. You got a second left in the game. What is he talking about here when he says the end is near? He, basically, he's saying everything that's, that's been written in the Old Testament, all of the prophecies, all the things that the, the Bible said needed to happen, have happened. The Bible talked about the, the coming of the one, the Messiah, who would suffer, who would die, who would rise again on the third day according to the scriptures, and he would ascend into heaven. He's saying all the stuff that needed to happen has happened. The only thing left in redemptive history is for Jesus Christ to return and to consummate the kingdom of God and to make all things new, to take all that was broken and to make it right, to take all that's wrong and to fix that stuff in the new heavens and new earth. He's saying that's all that's left. Everything has been done. Therefore, we're living in a time where the return of Christ is imminent. The end of all things is near. That's what he's saying. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. What do we need to do in light of the fact that the end could come at any time? It's going to get worse before it gets better. What do we do in order to prepare? Here's the first thing. The first habit that we need to do, the first thing we need to do is one, pray. Because God often gives us more than we can handle. What the heck are you talking about? Let me explain this. Okay. Uh, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Remember last week we talked about the way that the majority of the world lives. Okay, Not clear-minded, not self-controlled. How do they live? They live in drunkenness, Okay, the opposite of having a clear mind. Okay, They live in debauchery. They live in wild living. They live in wild partying and carousing. where we get the word carnival from, all of these kinds of carnal living, out-of-control behavior. He's saying, in light of how the world lives, you, if you want to pull through at the end, here's how you got to live. you got to be clear-minded, and you've got to be self-controlled. Don't give in to the lust of the flesh. Don't be controlled by wine, by alcohol, by drugs, by any of these things. Be clear-minded and self-controlled. Don't get so overwhelmed with emotion, with circumstances, that you're caught up in this frenzy, stressed out, so that you can't do anything. He says, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Why? So that you can pray. 
so that you can pray. This is, this is important because here's the truth. Have you ever heard somebody come up to you and say, hey, you know what? Um, God will never give you more than you can handle. You've heard this before, haven't you? You've heard this in a bunch of other lies that sound very biblical and Christian-like, but really have no biblical warrant. Things like God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, he may do that, but oftentimes, usually the paradigm, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is the people who don't have a prayer, the thief on the cross, the people who don't have a chance. These are the ones who can't help themselves. These are the ones that God saves. That's, isn't that the prerequisite of salvation? that we recognize that we are utterly worth helpless apart from the saving grace of God. There's a bunch of lies. God gives you more. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I think it's one of the most dangerous lies that we could ever hear in this life. Why? <clears throat> because if we really believe that to be true, there will be times in our lives, you've probably faced it, where you felt like you had situations in your life that this is too much for me to bear. And I can't do, I can't handle it. If we believe that God doesn't give us more than we can handle, then when we can't handle it and we have a breakdown, we're going to think there's something wrong with us. If we think God doesn't give us more than we can handle, then we're not going to ask anybody for help. See, we've got this daughter named Manny, and she's really cute. She's really funny. She's really silly. But her issue is not that she's got a lot of stuff, which she does. She has too much stuff. But her issue is not that she has a lot of stuff. Her issue is that she always wants to take all that stuff everywhere she goes all the time. And so she's got this stuff. She's got, she, she's got a kitchen that is like huge and it sits out in our living room. And she's like, I want to take that into mommy and daddy's room because she wants to sleep in there and play in there, do everything in there. So she's got all this stuff in there. She wants to take all that she has with her everywhere she goes. And so she's got this, this like water bottle, this new Lala Loopsy water bottle that she loves so much. And because it's new, she wants to take it everywhere. She's got this blanket that she won't let out of her sight. She's got this dog with a crooked head that she won't let out of her sight. She's got to take it everywhere. She's got this shopping cart that she pushes around and this little baby doll and all these things need to be with her on top of that she's got this bag that when she puts it on her shoulder she like topples over and she needs to carry all of that stuff with her wherever she goes so she's like tipping over like this and we're like manny here um daddy will help you carry that she's like no i don't need any help i don't need any help because she thinks she can handle all of that on her own and what invariably ends up happening that she drops some things her bag slips off of her arm. All these things spill out. She gets upset because she doesn't have enough hands to pick all that stuff up. And she falls on the floor crying. Because she's believed the lie that she could handle all that on her own. A lot of times we believe the lie that people tell us. That God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And if we believe that, we're never going to call out to anybody to help us. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite. You read in, <clears throat> read in 2 Corinthians. We, this is one of our go-to passages here. He's got a thorn in the flesh, Paul does, and he says, God, take this away from me. And God says, I'm not going to take it away. You can't handle it. It's too much for you to bear. I'm not going to take it away, though. Why? Because you can handle it? No. Because the verse that he gives, the promise that he gives is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power will only be displayed when you acknowledge that it's too much for you to carry on your own. It's too much for you to handle on your own. In fact, let me, let me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Okay, listen to this and see if that doesn't say the same thing. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. 
We were under great pressure. Okay, check this out. Far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's what he's saying. Look, you're going to face situations in life where it is going to be too much for you to handle. And until you get to that place of realization, you will never see the resurrection power of God at work in your life. But if you acknowledge that I can't do this on my own, then we're going to see God's power, wonder-working power at work because when we're weak, that's when we become strong. When we're weak, that's when his power is manifest. When we acknowledge that I'm a scrub and I can't do anything, then God's power comes rushing to us when we realize that I can't handle it on my own. See, we believe the lie. I can handle it on my own. We're a tough guy. We're a tough girl. We can do it. We don't need any help. And everything is always good all the time. Never a problem in my life that we're missing out on the grace of God and the power of God that is at work, that wants to be at work in our lives. So he says, be, be, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Why? So that you can pray. Because God often gives us situations in life that we can't handle on our own. When you're persecuted to the point of death, there's no, I can't handle that on my own. There's no way. God gives me nothing beyond what I can bear. I don't think so. If I'm persecuted at that point and my life is in danger and my people that I love, our lives are in danger, at that point, I'm not going to be relying on my strength. I'm not relying on my faith at that point at all. I'm calling out to God with everything that I am because I know that I can't handle this. He's saying when you get to that point, he's writing first the people of Asia Minor who would face this and himself later being crucified on a cross. Peter would face that. And all of us, as he's writing to, he says, you want to get to that point where you stand on the free throw line and you make your shots with all that pressure, then you got to be ready to go now to be able to pray. When you feel like you can't take it anymore, you can't make it anymore, you can't fake it anymore. It's too much for me to bear. He's saying, then you're probably in the right place for you to practice what's going to be necessary when the game is really on the line. In fact, it's R.A. Torrey who wrote this great book, How to Pray. It's it's those moments in our lives, you know, you, you experience times in our lives where we don't want to pray because it's too much for us. It's too heavy for us. It says, what do you do when the desire to pray isn't there? It says, do we then stop praying until the desire comes to us? Think about in our lives. I don't want to pray today because I've got pressure. I've got a, I've, I'm too busy. I've got all this work to do. People are persecuting me. I don't want to pray. I don't want to talk to God. In that moment, what do we do? When we don't want to talk to God, what do we do then? Do we wait until we want to talk to God? Says no. Says we pray. This is this is his famous quote. When we least want to pray, that's when we most need to pray. He says in those moments, he, and R. A. Tory says that, and this is, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of us can testify to this. In those moments where we didn't want to pray, we were too tired. We felt like I don't have the strength to pray, but we got into that place in prayer. And we just said, God, you know what? I don't want to pray. It's hard to pray. It stinks to pray. It's difficult. I don't know if I have the faith. In that moment, as we begin to acknowledge those things and the spirit of God comes upon us, haven't you you ever, ever experienced this? You experience that this could be some of your best times of prayer come when you acknowledge that I don't want to pray. And you fight through that time. And the spirit of God falls upon you in power. And you experience an intimacy and a freedom and an authority in prayer like nothing that you've experienced before. When you're too busy to pray, 
When you felt like you didn't have the energy or the faith to pray, and you got in that place and you said, you know what, I don't want to, but I need to pray. Even though I don't feel like it, I need to do this. And we begin to pray. We begin to experience the power of God coming on us and working through us. I don't want to come to prayer meetings. I don't want to do my quiet time tonight. I don't want to seek God's face tonight. I know I've been doing this. I committed to it, but I don't feel like doing it. That's where we most need to pray. And oftentimes it's when it's like working out. That's when our spiritual muscle begins to rip and begins to expand, begins to grow. And we begin to see God's authority and his power and his anointing descend upon us in a way far more than we could have, we could have ever imagined God would do for us. Just be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you could pray. That's the first thing because God often, don't believe the lie. God often gives us more than we can handle so that we could call out to God for help. Second thing that we see here, we're going to see this in verses 8 and 9, create a community built on sacrificial love. It says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. If you remember, again, the contrast between this and the majority world that we live in. Because the majority world lives with lust, he says live with love. Lust takes, love gives. Lust, what's in it for me, love what's in it for them. The world lives with lust, you live with love. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The world opens up their homes to have parties and to have orgies. You're not like that. Open up your home to hospitality. What is he saying? saying? Ultimately, he's saying build a community. When the world hates you, when every time you walk out of the doors of your church, you get persecuted and yelled at, suffered, discriminated against because you're a follower of Christ, you need a countercultural community, a haven in which you can find encouragement and help when all heck is breaking loose out there. You need a place where you can come and you can find this help. So create a community of love because you're going to need the support system when your life is in danger and your faith is put to the test. A few weeks ago, um, Manny and some friends and a few of us went to the Orlando Science Center where um, Kenny works, home of Kenny's Corner. And so they went there, a bunch of kids, and Walking around looking at uh, the different exhibits. I think they're a little bit too young for it. But there was this Meerkat movie going on. Anyone know what a Meerkat is? Ever see Meerkat Manor or anything like that? This is great. It's a Meerkat movie. 3D uh, eyeglasses, 3D glasses. We're watching the Meerkats are jumping out. Meerkats are fascinating creatures. If um, you don't know what they are, I think they, they, they come from the mongoose family. But they look like a hybrid between a monkey and a raccoon kind of. They're little cute little guys. And the movie was was just talking about how the meerkats come together as a community because everyone wants to kill them and everyone wants to eat them. I don't know. They taste like chicken or something like that. But they're always being preyed upon by all these bigger animals. They only stand uh, 12 inches tall. So they're little, little guys like this. So if he was on stage, you couldn't see him. Right? It's like little dude right here. Bunch of meerkats, and they're always being attacked by other people. And so the, the, whole, the, the whole thesis of this is the survival of the meerkats depend on their ability to work together as a community. They're 12 inches tall, right? They don't stand a chance against a lion, right? A lion would just 
kill all of them. So here, this meerkat is standing here and they, um, when they eat, okay, for example, when they eat, they have to put their head down to eat into the ground. And instead of everyone, if everyone's eating like that, then they're going to get eaten on top of them eating something else. So one meerkat or two meerkats always stands watch and looks around for the other people, right? For the other animals to come. And they're constantly talking to each other. I don't know what language they use. Probably use they're in the Kalahari Desert of, of Botswana. So they're probably speaking like Swahili or something like that. But they're talking to each other. They have over 30 different call signals that tell them there's food. There's a, a, a bad person coming. There's another group trying to attack our territory. And a bunch of other meerkats will come and try and take their territory because this group has, like, the best plot of land. Like, it's primetime real estate in the Kalahari Desert. So these other meerkats are trying to take it. And so while the other ones are eating, these guys are standing guard and they're talking to each other, saying, hey, 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 look out, look out, look out. And then the other meerkats look up and they start looking around. And they all stand shoulder to shoulder so that nobody can attack their younger ones. It's a beautiful picture of a community here. And when one meerkat begins to wander away, they get killed. So they never let them wander. When another group of meerkats, a male meerkat comes and he tries to court one of the girl meerkats, then the other brothers will come around and they will fight him to say, get away from us. Right? We don't want you. You're from the bad people. Right? You're, we're the jets. You're the sharks. So get out of here. We're not going to let you marry her. And so they shoo him away. Right? They fight for each other like that. They, 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 they give their, every mother, every mother is known to willingly sacrifice her life in order that her pups would be protected, that her pups would not die. It, it, it just, all these like 30, 40 minutes of this beautiful story of these meerkats and the community that they create with a willingness to sacrifice and to give their lives for one another, to fight for each other. And when some of them go off, they showed it, and, and every story has to have like some kind of dramatic action. And so this group goes foraging for food and they get lost because they've got this like dodo brain who doesn't really know the area well. He doesn't have his GPS and he gets lost and leaves a bunch of meerkats to get lost. And they're looking for their home. And along the way, they get attacked by different things. And they have to hide. They have to run. And, and they're like, how are we going to find our way home? And the other meerkats are looking out for them, waiting for them to come back home. And when they finally make it, it's this like beautiful thing where they start hugging each other and kissing each other and making all kinds of, of noises. You don't know what they're saying, but they're probably saying something like, it's so good to have you back home. We were worried to death. We were praying for you and all this stuff. And they come back home. And it's just this beautiful picture of a community of meerkats who realize that if they're not in community, they're going to get smoked. Because in a hostile world, if they don't stand together, they don't stand a chance. There is enough friction and enough forces at work trying to destroy them from outside that they don't stand a, they don't stand a chance if they're destroying each other from the inside. And so he says, above all, the most important thing as a community of faith is love each other deeply. It's not talking about warm fuzzies, like feel that deep in your gut. He's talking about for the long haul, with persistence, for a long time, consistently love one another deeply. Because if you love in that way, you will cover over a multitude of sins. You're not constantly bickering, 
bringing up their faults, bringing up their flaws, saying, hey, why did you wear that? Why did you say this? Why did you do that? Hey, you know what about this person and that person? Instead of gossiping, we love deeply, so we cover over a multitude of sins. That's what he's saying. Imagine a basketball team, a a basketball team, and over the course of an 82-game season, how many times they've had a chance to win at the last second, and they shoot up that shot and they miss it. How many times do you think that happens? You see that Michael Jordan commercial where it it shows him making the game-winning shot, and it has all these numbers. I don't know the numbers. Maybe some of y'all do it says like I, I just throw out numbers here randomly 49 times i made a game-winning shot in the last second 85 times i missed that shot right even michael jordan misses a game-winning shot imagine a basketball team we're a basketball team 82 games a year some of you take a shot sometimes i take the shot sometimes we make it sometimes we miss it but it's the bad teams that say you know what after the end of the game you know what dude shouldn't have, he shouldn't have shot the ball he always misses he always missed, especially with a game on the line. Cat never makes a shot. He couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. What's he doing even in the game? The bad teams do that. The great teams are the ones that say, you know what? For as many times as he's missed, I've missed. But it's one game. We're going to get it together. We're going to put it in the past. We're going to work together, and we're going to get him out. We're going to win the next time out. Whether it's him, whether it's me. They cover over a multitude of sins because that's all they've got. There are 30 other teams that are trying to destroy them and to knock them down. And if they destroy themselves from the inside, they don't stand a chance at winning a championship. And so it is with the church. The world is trying to get us to conform to their ways. And if we don't stand together, if we're talking about each other, if we're hating on each other, if we're gossiping about each other, if we're not forgiving each other, then what chance do we have to survive when all these forces are trying to bring us down? The practical outworking of this love, he says in verse 9, is to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why would people grumble? It's because when you offer hospitality to people, it involves a cost. You open up your home to people. It costs time. It costs money. See, this was important because in those days, the hotels and the inns that they had, you see this in the Jesus story, but the inns that they had were unsavory. They were unreliable. Oftentimes, they were fronts for prostitution. And so when traveling missionaries would come to preach the gospel, they they couldn't rely on hotels. They couldn't rely on inns. They couldn't stay at your church. Why? Because churches met in houses. And so they needed to rely on the generosity of people, the hospitality of others to open up their home and open up their heart. See, there's a difference between hospitality and entertaining somebody, right? Entertainment focuses on ourselves. Hospitality focuses on them because the root word for hospitality is the word hospital. And the idea is that you provide spiritual benefit and meet the spiritual needs of other people as they come into your home. See, here, there's a different reason why we offer hospitality, but we might grumble vis-a-vis the people in the first century. The reason they grumble was going to cost them time and money. The reason we might grumble is because we see our homes in a different way than they did back then. We see our homes, and I don't, I don't think this is much of us here. I think as a church, we do a great job with hospitality. But a lot of people in our culture see their homes as a museum of their net worth, as a haven from people, rather than a haven for people. As a gallery of all of the great furniture and all the great things that they've done and all that they've accomplished, and that's what it is, and so this is for me and this is for my family and for nobody else. 
But the people in biblical times understood that their homes were not just a place to shelter their family, but it was a place of ministry. And all of a sudden, when we begin to realize that our homes have been given and hospitality is a gift given to us to be a place of ministering to other people, then it changes what we do and how we spend time and how we meet people. I, uh, in, in my travels with, uh, to different places, if I could just encourage you, I haven't met a church that is so deeply hospitable as, as our church here. For people to open up their homes instead of saying, let's meet somewhere else, let's just come to my house and we'll, we'll meet, I'll make you a meal or I'll, I'll provide for whatever it is that you need. I haven't seen a, a place that is as generous with their hospitality. And I think this has to be so much of this is ingrained in the ethos of, of house church. That's what it was back then. And that's why we can do it today. In those days, how churches met in homes, so they were hospitable people. And I think because we meet in house churches, we extend this hospitality. This is part of, part of our DNA and it's part of the mentality. This has nothing to do with how big or how small our home is, just as in the same way a, a generous spirit has nothing to do with how much money we have or how little we have. It's about the heart. An open heart is saying this is an open home. And I will provide for you in order to meet your needs. A few uh, months ago, we had the opportunity to, to have, because of a conference here in, in Orlando, uh, there were a bunch of people that came in town, but over about 30 to 40 Korean-American pastors and, and church leaders came in, um, folks that we're, we're connected with. And a lot of our folks just opened up their hearts and their homes. I think about five or six of us extended, opened their homes for people that they didn't even know some of them to stay at their home. Pastors who needed a place to stay, right? church leaders, people who just wanted to learn and grow. And through this, every single one of these pastors, as they were leaving, as, as I talked with them, they said, hey, thank you so much. Tell your church members we're so grateful. Like in addition to the teaching, it was the blessing and the hospitality of these folks at Harvest that gave them strength and that gave them an example of what hospitality could look like. There were three people from churches that are thriving throughout the United States. That, that said to me afterwards, they said, you have no idea. Maybe you have an idea, but maybe you have no idea. Because we know from the outside that we would die to have a community like the one that you have at Harvest. And we, would, we would do anything if our people could be as welcoming as us, as hospitable and as generous as your people. And one of them, one of my, one of my friends, it wants to bring his leaders down here to, to learn about the atmosphere of hospitality and generosity that many of y'all have demonstrated to other people. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why? In Matthew 25, Jesus gives this great thing and he says, you know what? At, at the end of it all, separate the sheep and the goats and he say, you know what? When I, was, when I needed a place to stay, you housed me. When I needed food, you gave me food. When I needed clothes to wear, you gave me clothes. And the people of God will say, when? When did we ever do that? And Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of my brothers, you did that to me. And that flips upside down, this idea of hospitality. That when we open our home to people, not just our friends, but other believers, we're doing that to Jesus. We're feeding Jesus. We're giving Jesus, who had no place to lay his head, a place to lay his head. We're giving him a meal. We're giving him a place to wash. 
Whatever you did to the least of my brothers, you said you did it unto me. Praise God for the gift of hospitality. Create a culture, create a community built on sacrificial love because we'll need that in times of testing. And then lastly, the last thing, serve in God's strength, right? Serve in God's strength because the provider receives the praise. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Each of us has been given a gift. Have you ever been given a gift, something, gift that you're kind of embarrassed about, a gift that you didn't really like that much, gift that you're just kind of like, ah, you know, it's kind of awkward me receiving this gift because I don't know if I'll ever use it. Uh, <laughs> a couple years ago, I, I think I can say this because it wasn't any of y'all, <laughs> but I got a gift from someone. It was a necktie. Some would consider it a beautiful necktie. I thought it was an interesting necktie. It had sparkles all over it, red sparkles, a blue necktie. And I remember getting it. I was like, oh, it's kind of like awkward. And so I remember having a conversation with our senior pastor um, years back. He's like, David, you ever get necktie you think ugly? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe. He's like, what do you do with that? I don't know. I mean, if you wanted, I could give it to you. I don't really wear neckties that much. He's like, no. <laughs> He's like, very next Sunday, you wear that necktie. And you proudly show everybody. So person give to you, they say, wow, he loved my gift. Then you put it away, you never wear again. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, if they don't come, then you take picture and show them and say, you should have come to church. So I, I did that. I wore this necktie. Don't repeat this story else outside this place, please. Wore this necktie, sparkles all over it, and uh, yeah, not the not the not the picture of beauty that I was intending. I was standing before it was a, it was a combined all, all church worship service, and afterwards people were like, "Hey, interesting tie, neat tie, pretty cool tie. Never seen that tie before." But no one said it was a beautiful tie. That one person, our senior pastor's wife, she said, "Wow." Encourage. He's like, wow, Pastor David, such a, uh, how do you say translate, motion and tie. Uh, such a uh, cool, stunning, whatever tie. I was like, cool, that, you know, I'm not really trying to get compliments from you, but that's okay. That's, that's great. And I wore that tie so that I could say to that person, hey, you know what? At least I wore it one time. Because if I never wore it, then they would say, what happened? How come you never wore used, opened the gift that I offered that I gave to you. And I wonder if our God ever says that when he thinks about the church. Just to every single one of us, a gift has been given. But some of us are ashamed of that gift. I don't want to, I don't like standing in front of people. I know I can sing real well in the shower, but to stand in front of people, I don't think I can do that. And we never opened up that gift that God gave to us. Others of us compare our gift with other people. You know, a lot of times I wish I was Pastor Albert to be able to lead praise and to sing. And I think I am with my family when we have family worship. And I think I can lead like him. But to stand in front of all these people and come on, sing, church. <laughs> Beautiful. One time, one, during missions training, he was leading praise on the piano 
I was like, dang, I wish I could do that. I shouldn't have stopped piano lessons when I was little. And one of our girls was like, man, Brian McKnight got nothing on you. I was like, dang, ain't nobody ever say that to me. And sometimes we hide our gifts because we compare ourselves to other people. But God's saying each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. If that gift hasn't been given to you, been given to other people. That's why, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes, but whenever somebody asks me to, to minister, I have to think hard and pray about, God, is this something you don't want me to do? Because if this gift has been given, not for me, but for, to serve other people, then I am your servant serving them. And if that has been given to me to serve other people, then there has to be a reason for me not to use it to serve other people. And what about us? What about our gifts? But he doesn't just say that. He says, verse 11, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking to the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised. Here's another way to encapsulate what Peter's saying. When the strength of our service is ourselves, then people will praise us. When the strength of our service is God, then people will praise God. So the question is, in your life and in your ministry, in my life and in my ministry, do people thank God for you or do people thank you you. Even the most menial tasks that we do for the kingdom of God, we don't do it in our own strength. When you collect offering, when you print out the bulletin, when you fold that, when you pass out the bulletin, when you straighten the chairs in here, when you take out the trash, when you lead worship, when you give a prayer, when you preach a message, when you teach Bible study, when you lead house church, when you cook a meal, all of these things, are we doing that in our own strength? This is easy. I can do this on my own. I've done this so many times before. Or do we lean on the strength of God to do through us what we cannot, could not, will not do? It's these little things that demonstrate the power of God. And if we can have this first-time mentality, you know the first time you did something for God? There was that sense of such deep inadequacy and fear that you prayed, you might have even fasted before that first time you led house church, right after your feet got washed and you were commissioned. That first time you ever taught Bible study, when you heard that you were having sixth graders and that this class was a bunch of teacher-eating criminals. Right? You were scared to death. That first time you got up here to share a testimony. And you're like, oh my gosh, I never knew that it would be this scary. And you prayed and you asked people to pray for you and you fasted. You said, God, I need your help. And afterwards, people were praising God. But the fifth time, the eighth time, the tenth time, we've been doing it for a year now. We get to realize, you know what, I can do this on my own strength because it takes time to pray. It takes time to depend. It takes time to lean. I can do this on my own. 
And all of a sudden, people begin to see you and me instead of God through Christ. I remember I was preaching at a, at a conference, and um, this was fairly recently, and so it, it indicts me and it convicts me. I preached at a conference, and um, afterwards, this one guy came up to me and said, you know what, how could you, I, it, it was pretty cool. You just sat on a stool, opened up your Bible, and you talked for an hour. And I thought, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's cool. Thanks for uh, listening well, you know, how, you know, all that stuff. And then another person, another person, about five people came and they said the same thing. And I said, God, you know, if one person says it, that's one thing. But if multiple people are saying the same thing and it has nothing to do with you, then God forbid that I was speaking in my own strength, I was serving in my own strength so that that's all people saw. And yeah, there's grace to cover that and God loves people more than that, that he'll still use crooked sticks to draw straight. All that, so I know that. But I know that, hey, let's, let's bring it into our own situation. Bring it into my heart. I know God's going to use my brokenness and my failures. But I'm not going to be presumptuous. That next time around, I'm going to pray like there's no tomorrow. Because people don't need to see me and people don't need to see you. As we're going through hardship and persecution and suffering, the world doesn't need to look at us and, ah, yeah, cool, bunch of people get together. This is really neat. They don't need to see us. They need to see the one to whom we point. They need to see that our obedience and our willingness to suffer is a mere reflection of the one who was obedient and willing to suffer for the sake of the Father in order that we might have hope. We might have life. We need people to see in us the sacrifice and service of the one who laid down his life on the cross to die for your sins and to mine and for the sins of those who are persecuting us. That's who they need to see. Keith Green said when a poet writes a great poem, he uses a pencil to write it, but nobody says afterwards, oh my gosh, where's that pencil? This is the amazing pencil that wrote this beautiful poem. No one cares about the pencil. The pencil gets thrown out. All they care about is the one who is holding that instrument. That's all they need to see. How foolish of the pencil to think, oh, I'm a great, I'm the best pencil out there. How foolish of that donkey who rode, Jesus rode into Jerusalem thinking that he was better than any other donkey. And how silly of us to think that the world should see us when we offer our lives for him. When we serve we do it in his strength so that he would receive the praise and he would receive the glory. But whatever we do, we do it in his strength, for his name, for his glory, for the world to see. Let's pray. There's a lot of stuff, but all this to bring us to this one place, how can we prepare now in order that we would be ready then? Maybe we're going through situations in life that are too much for us to handle. And God's saying, you can't do it on your own. It's too much for you. You can only bench press 100 pounds. This is 600 pounds. You need help. You can't do it on your own. Maybe that's us. 
Maybe that's you. Lean on him. Pray to him. Maybe for others, we've been holding a grudge against people. Our love hasn't gone the distance and it hasn't covered over a multitude of sins. Maybe we've been unwilling to open our home to others because we're afraid as we look at our home compared to some other person's or because we've created this cave to be a haven from the world. Let's ask the Lord God, God, change my heart and make it ever true to you. And maybe some of us have been withholding our gift because we aren't like someone else. God's saying, I gave you that gift and I want you to open it up. And others have opened that up, but we've been doing it on our own strength. Saying, lean on me, do it in my strength so that I be praised through you. Let's take a a minute to pray to the Lord. We're not going to pray for a long time, but let's just pray sincerely, honestly, earnestly, praying for just half a minute, 45 seconds. Lord, help me to live out what I know so that I can practice well, that I might stand up and be victorious when the game's on the line. Let's pray together for a few moments, and I'll pray for us. Father in heaven, all of us want to be faithful to you when that time of testing comes in hostile territory with people cheering against us, when the pressure's on and the game's on the line. Father, we want to be faithful to you. We want to pull through. We can't leave it to spontaneity. It's like Peter. Three times he was called to pray and three times he failed. Three times he denied Jesus. We need to do this now prepare now to practice now to be faithful later so help us lord empower us may we take what we've heard now and begin to live it today implementing some of these things in order that word become flesh and is lived out in the midst of a world that needs to see the word jesus christ in us thank you so much we need you love you we pray these things in jesus name